All right. Welcome, everybody, to the Alternative Blacks podcast. This is episode number five. We're going to be discussing pervasive stereotypes in film, television, all types of media. But before we get into that topic, beer. That's right. So today we have single cut standing by a parking meter. I believe that's what it said. I picked this up at Mary's on the way over here. It was on the uh, draft list. And I just got a little growler. Yeah, and with no information on it. Okay, let's talk about this first. With no information on it, because one, it's not in a can, but two, you go to their website. And there's nothing. There's nothing. Untapped, nothing. Nothing. You go to different pubs uh, that have it up in the New York area. You go to their website. I think the one said, another killer beer by the people at Single Cut. So that helped a lot. Oh, yeah. Basically, it's an IPA, and that's all we can gauge from it. Uh, Northeastern. It's definitely like a New England style. You can just tell it has that like orange haziness to it. Yeah, it has that unfilteredness, I guess mm-hmm. you would say. It's definitely, it's definitely a, um, it's not a crisp beer, but it's, it's real smooth. I it mean, is it's smooth. strong hot profile, but not very bitter. It just feels very on par for what Single Cut produces. Yeah. So if you had single cut, you'll understand what we're talking about as far as this beer is concerned because it's just... It's solid. It's solid. They they make solid beer. I can't tell a real difference from one to the other from what I've had. And I think I've had almost all the ones that they have at Mary's. Yeah, I I would say this is for its style is right there, which is... That it's um, it's smooth, it's drinkable, has a good hot profile. Um, I can't really distinguish this from other beers of its style. And I can't distinguish really like flavors, like maybe pineapple. Uh, no, no, not like in your face pineapple, but I mean, I'm getting pine from the from the hops. Yeah, that's what I meant. There's pine and apples. Oh, there's apples in here. <laughs> I'll give you piney. It's it's piney. Um, it's really hard to put a flavor profile on this one for me. Basically, it's it's an idea. It's drinkable hops. Yeah. Um, nothing nothing crazy, but very solid. I'd give it a three. You'd give it a three. That's, I'd, that's I'd my give standard. It a, I'd give it a three seven five, which is like my average. Um, it's good. <laughs> it's good. It's solid. I I really like it, but. It's not something that jumps out to me. So that, that four and above is reserved for that. Right, I'll give that. That was a quick one for us, I think. That was the, the, the quickest. We're, we're setting records. Oh, yeah. Always setting records. <laughs> so speaking about beer, we'll, we'll keep it on this topic real quick. I was driving into work today and I was listening to Power 99 or Loud 93. I think it was Power 99. Uh, and I forget who the, the DJ was. I forget who was... Uh, the host of the morning, but she was discussing that Delaware has a bill in place or they're they're trying to get a bill passed. Yeah, it's on the uh, it's on the Senate floor and they're set to vote on it um, soon, I guess. Uh, Bill 44. um, And what it's going to do is decriminalize underage drinking, um, basically turning into a civil offense instead of a criminal offense. Now that's just the first two offenses. The third offense 
of underage drinking that a person would get, that would be the criminal offense. But the first two are civil offenses, which basically means you get fined for it and there's no criminal record attached to it. Okay. So when I was listening to it, the the hosts seemed to be really against this idea uh, because they felt like it was going to promote more drunk driving, more underage drinking. They're like, oh, it's not really that much trouble. Uh, one, I think what the the fine's gonna be what a hundred dollars. First fine's a hundred. Okay. Personally, at like let's say sixteen, if I was charged a hundred dollars for something, that's big. <laughs> <laughs> like I know what you're probably getting charged now for underage drinking is even higher. Right. But still, a hundred dollars is still a hefty fine to me. Maybe in some other communities it might not be, but yeah, for me and in my community. I could not afford a hundred dollar fine. Well, and the other thing is, just by the way that laws are usually written, the first fine's a hundred. The next fine's probably like a couple. It's not like two hundred. Right. It's probably like five hundred or more. Exactly. So I know they had a hard time wrapping their head around this, and they didn't think it was a good idea. Uh, and I think looking at this the site, there was other people that commented that kind of led into yeah. a good progression that we can then dive into our feelings on this. Right. So um, one of the, the first comment on here, which is really the only response to the bill on here, um, was basically, you know, berating the Senate for, um, or the legislature for, you know, basically giving kids a pass. Like, oh, this is, this is, this is horrible because it's going to increase death and arrests you know, drunk driving, all this, you know, because they're not being penalized. Um, we have to, te- we, you know, we can't just slap kids on the wrist. We have to actually make sure that they know there's repercussions for their actions and we will not tolerate drinking and driving. And it's like, hold, hold up, hold up. That's a whole nother issue. Yeah. Underage drinking and drinking and driving are two separate issues. Right. They, there's correspondence. They correlate. They, 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 I can see how one might lead to the other, but drinking underage doesn't mean drinking and driving. Correct. And nothing about this says if they drink underage and drive that they wouldn't get a DUI. Correct. It's it's not taking that away. It's like if you're twenty if you're twenty and under, you don't get a DUI. But if you're twenty one and over, now it's your yeah. DUI. That's not how it's, that's, that's not how it works. Basically, it is. If you get caught drinking and driving 20 and under, you get the DUI. And then instead of getting a second criminal offense, which would be the underage drinking, you just get the civil penalty and pay the fine as long as it's your first, one of your first two. Right. So there's still added repercussions. You're still paying out more money and you still have the offense. It's just not a second criminal charge. And it's a huge deal, I think, because, you know... Say say you're freshman year in college, you know, and oh, this yeah. is com- this is coming from someone who who did not do this until they were 21. Yeah, you did not um, drink until you were 21. Me neither. <laughs> Don't so, check my untapped. <laughs> Don't check when I first like logged my beer. I was 21. I promise. No, but uh, you know, imagine two two friends, two doormates in college, freshman year, and uh, they're both 17 at the time. And and they both have a birthday consecutive days, Saturday, Sunday. So it's their, both their birthday weekend, so they want to celebrate. They go out. They go to a party. They have, they have some drinks. 
you know, say it's like one o'clock in the morning now and the party gets busted and the one who's 18 now, they both, they both drank the same amount. They both got busted at the party. This 17 year old, yes, it's an underage offense, but he or she turns 18 and it's expunged because they're a child when they were, when they had the offense. This 18 year old is screwed. That is now on their record and they have to work to, you know, overcome that. Oh yeah. But they're getting, now you're getting penalized for being closer to the legal age and the other person doesn't. Well, see, my big thing is I, I did the uh, German exchange program when I was in high school. So I was 17 when I went to Germany. And the way they had it set up, it was if you're 16, uh, you can have beer. I think you described it as like there's a certain AB, ABV that as long as that's yeah, under, like you're allowed to consume it, yeah. right? And then when you turn 18, now it's kind of open, open. season. <laughs> Hunting for alcohol. Yeah. Um <laughs> But what also happened in those cultures was a lot of people weren't just like, okay, they turned 16, that was the first beer, you know, in the household and like when you went out to restaurants too and stuff like that, some of those meals you were able to have beer as well. And so like you were 15 maybe then and you were also learning how to drink with people socially responsibly. Correct. And there wasn't this big like taboo on it. It wasn't like, oh, something's withheld. And there's a supervision. You weren't 17, 18 years old going off to party in college, in college yeah. with no supervision. At all. The only supervision were the 21, 22, 23-year-olds who were drinking as well. And who are, in fact, not much more mature. mature. No. <laughs> it's just like, it makes no sense. We, we make this such a big deal about, has to be 21. Make a huge deal about underage drinking, about not being able to do this, not being able to do that. But other countries have like shown that okay, if we treat this as a normal thing, as something that should be done responsibly, you know, I was going out in Germany, going to the bars, going to have going to parties, and they were there was a driver. Some one of our friends would drive us there. That driver didn't drink. He drove to a party with his friends, hung out, had uh, had fun with his friends, never had a sip of alcohol, got in the car and drove everybody else home and made sure that they were home responsible because the next night when we went out, that person wasn't driving, someone else was. So there was like a little cycle going on, like uh, who drew the short stick of the night. But they were so responsible about it, the, the way they follow traffic patterns, just normally, just how everything was done. Bartenders weren't asking people for IDs when you got to the bar. Because even if you were like 15 and couldn't drink, you were still at the bar. But the Germans weren't going up to the bar like, oh, you know, I kind of look 16 or I kind of look 18. Let me order what I want. There was a trust. There was a responsibility. They knew that the most of the kids were going to do the right thing. And so like for me, being 17, I was like, oh, let me get a rum and coke. And like, here you go. And I was like, I'm not 18. <laughs> because I'm coming from a society that just puts such a stipulation like, well, you're not allowed to do this. And so everyone's like, well, what's so fun about this? Let's try this. Yeah. And I, it, it's it's kind of weird because it's like you have America is all about, freedom. wants to be all about freedom. Free this. You, know, you, can't, you can't legislate us 
until there's until there's something that you don't agree with. Now all of a sudden, you know, it's all bets are off. Now we're now it's not about freedom. It's about you know, oh well, you know, these kids don't know any better. You know, these kids mm-hmm. don't know any better. They're they're check you know, your freedoms. They're crazy. Check your freedoms. I that's what I always say is like. I like the opportunities that are available to us. It's just that we're not as free as we pretend to be. And it's also interesting to see where those freedoms lie and who they benefit. Yes. And which freedoms people care about. Yes. And with that, we watched When They See Us Finally, the whole thing, since our last episode was (sighs) a whole month ago, but... You know, it it took quite a it took quite a while to get through. I'm gonna tell you, it was it was very it was emotionally draining. It was such a, it was so well done and it was so good. It was so informative. Uh, actors, directing, everything was just great. Production, amazing. And that was what's weird about it because I couldn't binge it. No, I had to watch an episode, process, walk away. And it'd be a day or two until I could go back to the next episode. Oh yeah, we could have easily binged it for the last episode because we talked about what we both watched the first episode. Right. We could have binged it, but we couldn't have binged it because it just it was so draining and it hurt and it was upsetting. And you knew the story. You know the story. You knew the outcome. You knew the outcome. You knew I didn't What happened in prison to Corey. To Corey Wise. Which the way, the way that actor um, portrayed it, I mean, he was on the nose. And I mean, did you did you watch the Oprah? Um, I didn't. I didn't afterwards. Get a so they start with the whole cast on stage, um, and 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 Ava DuVernay, the director, mm-hmm. um, is sitting with Oprah. And everyone else is kind of like on a on a panel, sort of, and you know, she's just firing questions, and um, then they bring out the five. To, to do the same and all the actors go to the to the audience and you know it's so evident that Corey was like his time was just so uh so damaging and the way that he that the actor captured that um and Corey even said like you know I think Ava mentioned that she was so nervous when they were first watching it because Corey has his own episode, right? The fourth episode is Corey's that was so episode. Well, cool because it was uh, it was so well done in that way because they do all these deep dives and everybody else, but they're like cutting back and forth between people, right? Right. In like the same episode on the third and episode, the whole time you're just like, all right, what about Corey? All right, what about Corey? Because they're going to them when they're young, and then then they're they're out finally, and they're adults. Yes, yeah, so struggles. Like, okay, but what about Corey? And then that whole episode, like, I'm, like, chills, like, it was so tough to watch. And I know I had to get to a uh, board meeting, (laughs) and I ended up being late, not because I didn't have time to get there, but I had to emotionally, like, process everything after I finished that episode, and just had to, like, collect myself so I could like go and talk and even at the board meeting I found myself getting choked up about stuff I was like I'm talking about basketball (laughs) (laughs) no but it's just like that episode and like you know she said you know they were watching they were all 
she was so nervous for how, what Corey was going to think of it. And she said yeah, he stood up and turned around. And he was like, yes, like that was it. The way it was portrayed, the way it was done, like you captured it. You told my story exactly how it was. And, you know, it was like, wow. And it, it's, it's tough. I mean, you can, you can see the hurt. Um, you know, I think Antron, Antron McRae and, uh, Corey Wise were the two that were, that were hit the, hit the hardest by it. Mm -hmm. you, you can, you can, you can see it, you know, they can't hold it. Um, but it's, it's, it's so, it's, it's, it's devastating. I think, it, you know, what that'll do to, yes, they're exonerated, but they lost so many years of their lives, especially Corey and just the trauma. They, lo no, they lost their life. They didn't lose. So the way I see it, they didn't lose so many years of their their lives. They lost their lives. Like, I, I understand where you're coming from. And I don't disagree with what you're saying in the factual, like, from when they went in to when they got out, those years were lost, plus the years trying to get back to normality before all this came to light and were exonerated. Those physical years, yes, lost. Within that, those developmental years where you get to identify who you are to lead yourself down a path to become whatever the fuck you wanted to be. They had everything that happened from that night on changed what opportunities or what butterfly effects could happen. What, what, different paths they had opportunities to even become because of that they they the the scope of what they could do even after getting exonerated and be able to get further their educations all of what happened to them influenced what they now decided to do with their lives yeah and i i understand, I, I get that and i agree with that point but i think you don't want to say that they com that they completely lost their lives you I think I think what I would they say is options. they lost their options and they lost the, their potential lives, their original path, right. the original yeah, opportunities. Because their lives, they still have their lives and they're still living their lives. They're still being, you know, positive forces um, and doing doing great things with their lives. So mm -hmm. they still have their lives. You're right. No, I, I didn't word that right. You are you are absolutely <laughs> right. We finally got to what we were trying to say. <laughs> You're absolutely right because they they do have their life ahead of them. They they didn't completely. I, I but it is but it is altered forever. You know, so you know that's what I took. That's what I took away from it. You know, no matter no matter how many books you read, no matter how many articles you read on the topic, and no matter how many how many of the facts that you know about the story, and knowing that knowing for me knowing that. I know this is not a one-off. This is certainly not a one-off. So it hurts because to see to see how it affected them and how it destroyed them psychologically, how many more hundreds of people, thousands of people in this country are experiencing the same thing. A lot of them haven't been exonerated yet. No. So that's that's what I, that's what I hurt. Yeah, and that's that's what hurt me the most by this is like seeing seeing these 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 men who, you know, 
once they were convicted and sent to jail, this is the best possible outcome for them. And it's and and no matter what, even even though they still have their lives and they're making the most of it, you know, that damage is still there. That's very true. And that's why I have such a hard time with news. Like being someone within media, I absorb it, I pay attention to it, and I read it, and I try to stay as current as I can. But even like when I see police blotter, like it, it just it's here's who got arrested this weekend. This is what they did, or like some some of them like all right, I kind of just like push it aside and don't go too into it or not try to have conversations with people. Cause I'm like, I don't know how much of that's actually true. Right. And I don't know if I can, if I can truly believe that a very important aspect of that, that I have to point out, there's a big difference between not believing what's put out there as far as a news article is concerned. So I'm going to bring it back to Trump. There's a difference between Okay, someone wrote an article about Trump, and this is what the article says he said or he did or something like that. It's like, okay, well, if you say that about all this police stuff and you don't believe all that, how are you going to believe everything that they say about Trump? I was like, okay, I'll give you that. But when you actually go out of your way to place an ad asking to murder kids, yeah, you tr- you show your true character and you can be judged by that action trump was trump was easily shown to be racist well before we were born so that's not even that's not even a thing so like whoever's saying that you know they're 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 full of shit but you know that perception that perception that comes out you know based on what people want to believe, um, based on negative stereotypes, based on hatred, whatever it may be, has real effects. Sure. Um, which is what we are going to be talking about today. Um, what a segue. main top. Oh, oh, yeah. Oh, what a All transition. Right. Like, let, let's, we need to get like a horn sound effect. <laughs> <laughs> I should if I should, I should have the app on my phone and just put it up to the mic next time <laughs> yes. so I have it. But so to yes, pervasive stereotypes of black people and minorities in general in television, film, media. You know because that's. I, I think like a couple of years ago, when we were, if we were going to have this conversation, we could have gotten away with just saying television and film, right? But because of what this culture is and the quick rise of uh social media <laughs> you going for another beer maybe <laughs> social media m- media is so much broader it's not just radio television and movie screen anymore it's absorbed in so many ways that's what makes this platform that we're utilizing so impactful is that we're able to broadcast to such a wide group of people and quickly right and so that's why this conversation and this topic is so important because of how easily content is absorbed and received and distributed, 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 disturbed. But no, also it, how, it's so important yeah. how, how people are uh, portrayed. Yes, like you, yes. you have to call this stuff out. You have to bring it to people's attention that 
jokes have to be a little more uh, monitored. You have, you have to have a a bigger understanding because just because you and I can see past something that's supposed to be like received as a joke, it can be so dangerous to other people that aren't able to absorb that content in the proper way. So when you have these pervasive stereotypes, it's damaging to a culture. It is. It is. And so what what we're going to do here is uh, we're going to run through a list of some of the pervasive stereotypes um, in TV, film, and the media at large. Um, but first, uh, when you think of uh, black characters in film and TV, who do you think of? Okay, so I immediately went to Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. Nice. Because that was such a big part of my life growing up. And again, it wasn't until really recently that I started having a more conscious understanding of what I was receiving and trying to be more um, aware of black content and trying to really take it in. So I'm like watching Insecure a lot right now. Um, that type of stuff. I'm really trying to dive into uh, to my culture a little heavier. Since your but, black experience. Since my black experience. Episode four, guys. Check it out. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but Fresh Prince, that was, Will Smith was a huge uh person in my life growing up because I just felt like there's a lot of similarities the the, the goofiness uh, it was just, he was just a fun person and a good role model uh i also thought immediately of static shock like because i was one of the yes, black cartoons too, too. like yeah. what you had codename kid next door so you had number five yeah number five number number five b-u-h uh <laughs> five but again, like looking back at a lot of these cartoons, I didn't have a lot of black characters to look up to or like I didn't understand that stuff. One of my favorite shows growing up was Boy Meets World and maybe one black character. Never watched Boy Meets World. But it, it was such this it was it's huge because they ended up making Girl Meets World recently because we're in the age of reboots. <laughs> and um, it was interesting because of all these shows that were popular growing up. Uh, like mainstream popular popular if you go to like vh1 i remember the 2000s yeah. whatever it'd be all these shows and you have to think about like whoa what was what was really being put out there outside of like a bet channel right that was black culture right it was basically like um like the cosby show which yeah. we got to talk name, about but, that because but it but it was that but like the first the first thing I thought of was the Boondocks. Facts. And well, we'll hold on. talk about this though, as, as that being like one of the first things that you thought about. That's what that was Adult Swim. Yeah, I mean it's a very it's a very you, you, adult show, but right, it's but you like it wasn't it wasn't as for the children. It, it wasn't for the the youths. Uh, oh, it was front facing. It's definitely front facing, no, no, but, it, but it's satirically no, no, front facing. No, in the, when I meant front facing, I mean it wasn't seven o'clock prime time. Oh like, no, no, it everybody was, like two was in the morning. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> How hard was it for you to get that black content in that way? Like in that amazing black content. Yeah. Uh, I also thought of Lawrence Fishburne. No. Um, oh yeah, yeah. I also thought of uh, Morpheus. I've also thought of uh, Mace Windu, you know, 
as being these characters that I gravitated towards without realizing why I was like, oh, I really like this character. Yeah, it's it's oh, a little, I, it yeah. looks like me. He, he right, re- he represents me. Right. right, and so you know, these are some of the people we think of um, when we, when we think of black black characters. You know, black portrayal of black people in film and TV mm-hmm. in the media. Um, so we'll keep that list in mind. Um, yeah. And there's more people on this list, but I think yeah. I think it will be easier to bring those people back up. As this conversation goes forward. Right. Before we get too far into it, uh, maybe we should define pervasive stereotypes a little bit. Like when when that phrase, those two words, pervasive stereotypes, is said, what does that mean to you? What does pervasive stereotypes mean to me? Yeah. If you had to define that. Because everyone has a little different definition of things. So I, I want your... I would say it is an idea of a characteristic of a people um, or the behaviors or psychology of a people or even physiology of a people that persists throughout time and is over time, over a long period of time, been taken as fact of that people. So I can't say it better than that. So I'm just going to quote, I'm going to quote the Smithsonian article while we're at it. So Cheater. I, yeah. This is why I made you go first. See if I, I didn't want to lead and then be like followed up by that. Like I allowed you to be Kendrick on Black Friday. You went first. Yes. And I'm not going to. Be J. Cole. Be J. Cole. Which love J. Cole. But. He did not have a better verse on Black Friday. Okay. Message. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So there's an article on the Smithsonian. I do not have who it was written by, but it's out there. If you look, if you literally Google per- pervasive stereotypes, Smithsonian, even if you don't put Smithsonian, it's like the first article. It's like article. the first article. And, and on a note, we will be posting these links um, in on Instagram. Uh, when we I'll post this episode, too. yeah, we'll we'll tweet them because we have a Twitter. <laughs> I think I don't. What's Twitter? But yes, we will be posting we'll, these we'll so you can check them out. Them. Yeah, we'll be tweeting them, as the kids say. All right, so Smithsonian stereotypes of African Americans grew as a natural consequence of both scientific racism and legal challenges to both their personhood and citizenship. The ruling in the 1857 Supreme Court case, Dred Scott versus John Sanford, wherein Chief Justice Justice Roger Taney dismissed the humanness, 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 right? Humanness of those of African descent set a legal precedent for African-Americans to be reduced to characters in popular culture. I think mine was better. No, I'm kidding. Uh, yeah, that I mean that that says it right there, and it gives you a bit of history too, a bit of context. Um, I mean, that, I mean that, that's perfect. You know, it can't be said better than that. I mean, it's that's exactly what it is. Dismissed humanness of a people and reduced them to caricatures. Just insane. So with that, we're going to run through a list of the. Stereotypes. The stereotypes. The, the biggest ones. And things that have be- become. Uh, some of these are known. Some of these, like. 
Somebody's the average person yeah. are going to like, oh yeah, no, I know, yeah. I know that like the minstrel shows, they're, they're going to kind of have a general understanding of like the Aunt Jemima kind of character and stuff like that. The, uh, the mammy and all of that. Yes. Uh, but other ones, once we start talking about it and we get to start leading yeah. into examples and seeing how it's still relevant. Yeah, you'll be like, oh my gosh, that is actually a constructed stereotype that I'm thinking of. And those are the, those are the quote-unquote successful ones because you need to identify the problem first right. before you can remedy it. But if you've entrenched it in your society so much that it's not even there anymore to be seen, now you have a quote-unquote fact. So... Um, the first stereotype here is a is a pretty big one. Uh, the mammy, um, an, an an offensive racial caricature that portrays highly skilled black women as domestic workers working as caretakers in the homes of white families. The trope painted a picture of undying loyalty to their slaveholders as caregivers and counsel that ultimately sought to legitimize the institution of slavery. So. Um, examples examples of this uh, the big one is Aunt Jemima which is crazy because think about that that's like still happened like I don't know you can still buy Aunt Jemima you can with, with, with her you know the smiling face on the on the package and everything in the bottle shaped like a like a, a curvaceous woman too a selling point but it you know Aunt Jemima was played by a real person at a point they got like a so like a black celebrity cook at one point to actually a chef rather not a cook a chef to portray her at one point so it 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 got pretty deep um and the mammy the mammy uh caricature has been used to basically sell any kind of good you can think of throughout time okay so this this just hit me would the Popeyes spokesperson. Yep. Fall into this. Because yes. that that that's portrayed as, hey, this is the owner of Popeyes. That's right. a, that's false. I'm pretty sure the Popeyes like CEO or owner is white. Most likely. And that that baffled me when I found that out. Like my cousin who's like all into these like Conspiracy theories, like we need to get out of here, kind of things. He uh, he had posted something along that lines, exposing that. I was like, "All right, get out of here." And when I googled it, I think that was right. Yeah, I mean, I I think I'm I'm looking it up now. Uh, we'll get in. We'll get into the yeah. Owner Al Copeland, Alvin Charles Al Copeland. Do we have a picture? I do not have a picture of him at the moment, but it's not. It's not child. Have some. Have some of this right. chicken right like here, child. Typed in Al Capone instead of Copeland. <laughs> oh yeah, he white white. Ah, okay. I had Cheryl Bach Elder as the parent, as the American businesswoman who was CEO of AFC Enterprise, the parent company of Popeyes. Still white. Yes. Yes, exactly. And so it's, it's that huge misconception of like, here's this spokesperson who is trying to sell fried chicken as a, hey, this is like fried chicken's black mm -hmm. and I'm black. It's so you know this is food. good. Yeah. Shit, have some of my fried chicken child. 
Child. Exactly. Exactly. And this dude looks like a cross of Mark Cuban and Jose Canseco. And that's scary in it's itself. It's terrifying. And he's always sunburned for some reason. Every picture. So. Because <laughs> he's, he's living white. the life. <laughs> oh. Because he's white. Yeah. <laughs> right. Similar, similar but the same. Okay. Right. So, you know, the Aunt Jemima, the Popeyes spokesperson, I mean, that is... Wow, you really hit the nail on the head with that one. It just hit me because we were trying to like, we were like, okay, let's get all these examples. And I don't know why that didn't hit quicker. Oh, we were talking to Angel Mama and I was just like, oh shit. We Popeye's have, is yeah. doing it right now. Right like, now. Even more in your face. I don't remember the last time I saw an Angel Mama commercial. No. Because I remember when the bottle was talking and yeah. that was fucking weird. Yeah, it was creepy. But holy shit, they're doing it like right in your face right now. And it took us that long to figure it out. We've been we've been we've been trying to brainstorm for like a week plus yeah. on on these names, and that just hits you right now. I mean, that's not it's offensive. <laughs> so, <laughs> another example is Medea, Tyler Perry's character of many beloved or hated movies. Yeah, I have mixed feelings on them now. What was your uh, reception of Medea movies? Uh, see, I haven't seen them all either. I haven't seen them all because there was a point where it was like, oh, yeah, I was up to date. And it was like, well, if you, if you know me, then you know like I barely see movies at all. So the fact that I saw one of them is like that's true. a surprise. So um, it was... I, it was entertaining, I guess, but it's just like it is so like it's so ridiculous, and it's not even like it's not even like a ridiculous that um there was controversy with Dave Chappelle for the Chappelle show, right mm-hmm. and he even said this again was part of the reason that he stopped doing the show is his humor at a point was causing essentially white people to laugh at black people. Right. They weren't and, laughing with. Right. They were laughing They're at. laughing at. And that's what I think of when I think of Medea. We are laughing at this. And I mean, she, I mean, Medea is like, I mean, over the top, mammy, like stereotype. Southern tradition, like traditional, which when you like then start thinking about what it means to be a Southern Traditionalist? Yeah. Yeah. Like, what is Southern tradition? We're not even going to go there right now. I don't even want to go there right now. I don't now. think we have a lot of listeners from the South, so <laughs> we're not going to offend anybody. But it's... It, <laughs> that's n- neither here nor there. Then where is it? But uh, one of the quotes that from The Guardian, from another article that we were looking at that came into it was... Um, I don't know. I thought this this had a lot of value. Like it or not, Medea has sustained African-American filmmaking through lean pre-Oscar so white times where once she and Perry represented black cinema as a whole. Now he is one in a multitude of voices. He should be thanked. They're not likely to erect a Medea statue in Atlanta anytime soon, but the old broad at least deserves a decent burial. Because... He said he was he's tired of the bitch. That's what that's literally that's what Tyler saying. Perry said. And it's very interesting because at that point, that's that was my reception of 
the Tyler Perry movies. For my family, for my black family, it was such a unified moment. It was like, yeah, we got together primarily for like Christmas, Thanksgiving, stuff like that. But that was the only time like I, I can clearly remember, oh, a Medea movie came out. The family's gone. My, my dad, my aunt, my cousin, my grandma, my great aunt. We'd all get together, go to the movies. A phone goes off in the middle of it. And my grandma's like, whose phone's going off? <laughs> grandma, it's coming from your purse. <laughs> she doesn't listen to media anyway, so she won't hear that story. I can get away with that. Yeah, she doesn't, she doesn't tune into the media. <laughs> yes, yes, she is. I always, I always just compared her a little bit to Medea in the sense that she is funny. She she could be a very funny and loving woman. And really, she's ride or die for the family. But she also is kind of traditional and certain things she will call you out. And she came at somebody with an umbrella before. I watched that happen. That was scary, but she was sticking up for me, so I appreciated it. But there, there is that, there's that issue with the Medea movies, with the Tyler Perry movies, where they hit on some really key topics and really interesting. They, they, Tyler Perry, I think for the most part, really wanted to uplift black women. He really did. At least that's how I viewed it. And the struggle that Perry went through to even get to where he is and what he's doing with his fame now is commendable. But. A lot of people, Spike Lee, who I don't really like at all, I have to agree with him. He doesn't like you. He doesn't like me, and he doesn't like us. That's right. Brother Spike Lee, by the way. Come on, brother. He doesn't even like you, brother. (laughs) Um, He, Spike Lee even pointed out, is like, you know, you made a buffoonery of, like, black people. It's a a coon show, is, is what he's saying. And... You know what I what Medea is to me is is that in a in a sense, and what i'm what I'm thinking now is it kind of speaks to how entrenched um these caricatures are to the point where he thought that he was uplifting black women, but he was using a racist stereotype to do it because well, no. he didn't know any better okay. Is that is that kind of eh. so Medea I saw as being a tool in his storytelling arc to break up the drama and the seriousness of the issues that like a lot of the, the, the characters were going through, the hardships and their struggle to come above all of that. So you would hit a, a series of scenes. It was really hard and like real. And so to break that almost sadness, you would have a Medea scene and things would uplift. You would have these cheap laughs. Okay, I get that. So in one way, he was trying to tell the real struggle and stories of people. And then what he was trying to use as a tool to combat that and make it easier to digest ended up backfiring yeah because what i what i'll say in the last last point i'll make on this is um the if he's doing that you know that's a good thing but it's misplaced using this trope to do it in the sense that this trope is perpetuating 
undying loyalty and complacency to being dominated by the white male as a white woman would do the caregiver the caretaker it's basically creating like a complacency in in that so to use that to cut the seriousness of the black struggle to me is a bit misplaced and that's all i'll say on it that's all i have to say about that (laughs) um no it's hard for me because while i think his heart was in the right place and i i do see for the most part medea is very independent and very uh think for the most part was very driven by her family wanted to see her family be uplifted was very pro-black but i think because of how she like the what she derived from what she what she is a template of take takes a lot of value away from it and i think that's why perry is trying to get rid of that character and try to move on past this um well, I'm glad I, I do want to try to get it because yeah, it's I, been long. It's yeah. been long enough, about damn time. Yeah, I, I do want to say that maybe I would have liked to say that maybe he didn't understand what he was doing, but he had to. There, there's no way the, the his mind because of how like watching him do everything he's done away from film, but also to see what he did within the films. Yeah, he's not a dumb person. And he's not an ignorant person in that sense. Exactly. So he's not oblivious. So with that being said, so with that being said, there's a couple more characters. Or yeah, just want to quick. So quick the hit help them was up. a good example that the movie just we'll just put that out in general. There, that character, I, I'm terrible. I saw it once. I didn't go back into yeah, it. Yeah, same. That that agree. that's a mammy. Yeah. Like that that's that's playing off off of some pervasive stereotypes while still being like supposed to be uplifting it's still using it's using it was using the trope and then his and then like showing the contrast i guess and i think there's a lot of white savior in that yeah in that movie yeah which we can we can do a whole episode on white savior thing because let's talk about the last samurai and let's talk about ghost in the shell let's talk about just like yeah just all 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 (laughs) let's talk about this whitewashing and the all of that we'll get and and we'll come we'll come back to that later have to uh, but then one of one of the I didn't really see it pop up on the list that we were doing research on, but I felt like I had to mention it because it's actually one of my favorite books. Yeah, Calpurnia from The Kill a Mockingbird. Mm-hmm. It's definitely the Mammy character. But again, I, I loved her character so much in that book, and I and I loved that book. Because of how it broke down and played against a lot of stereotypes in general. It was so interesting to watch a single father raise a rebellious little girl. Yeah. uh, Stick up for African Americans as a lawyer as someone who had clout within the community and didn't really need to, you know, for all intents and purposes, didn't need to do anything like that. But this book is written about Harper, Harper Lee as a author. I really just enjoy. I read this book when I was in seventh grade for the first time. Couldn't obviously really comprehend it. 
then read it for fun again in yeah. ninth grade before getting into the advanced English class in 10th grade and being told we had to read it that I was supposed to have read it again, which I had done, but thought to myself, well, I guess I'll read it one more time if I have to. Um, what's unfortunate is that they, they do really buy into a lot of stereotypes though, throughout the whole book though, as far as the black people are like, even the way that they're, they're speaking and stuff like that. I get it was supposed to be a attempt to reflect how one might have sounded in the South. They they did it with some other characters and some other white characters based off of how some yeah. white trash would be talking. However, it's like... But there's an assumption there still. Exactly. Right. Um. So while Calpurnia is a very strong mother-like figure in this, in this book and does uh, give some good advice, she's still playing off of this mammy character, which is this houseworker. Right. Who is caretaking for the children. That happen to be white. Happen to be white. Sound, sounds like a mammy to me. And, uh... When she went home, what was her home life like? Like it, it it's so tough because I want to like that book so much, and I want to like really say that, that book was perfect. But there are some flaws, and, it, and so it becomes a look. At, do you look at it as a well, the era that I was supposed to be written in, and all this type of stuff? It's like what was going on, blah blah blah. blah. I I just don't. I mean, you can do there's, that, but... There's not much more to her character in that book than the mammy. Than a caregiver. And that's where you have to have that analysis. Right. There's no, there's no difference there, so... That's a, that's a, good, that's a good observation. Um, I read that book, and I did not pick that up. I only read it once, and I was young, so I'm definitely, I definitely should read it again. It's, so, it's such a good book. If you have the opportunity, if you have the time... It's written so well, I thought. Obviously, as as a uh, seventh grader and a ninth grader want, wanting to read that book, not as the seventh grader because the seventh grader was like, "Oh, there's the book." The ninth grader though wanted to reread it. Uh, to me, it was a good book because I'm somebody who enjoys reading, but it has to be the right book. I have a hard time really diving in and finishing something. So to have finished a book alone once is incredible. Three times is something like short of amazing. All right, so we have more stereotypes. Yes, yes. I mean that was a big one. Obviously, um, that's one of the one of the main ones, and one that's easily reproduced um, a lot. So we really hit that one hard. Um, the next one is kind of in the same boat, though. Um, Uncle Tom. So. Uncle Tom, the stereotype of Uncle Tom is characterized as innately servile, obedient, and in constant desire of white approval. All right. So here's the, we're going to go back to the list moment. Yeah. Because we were talking about the boondocks. Oh, yeah. So, <laughs> and so Uncle Tom, I just, I always have to laugh. Uncle Tom. <laughs> no relation. Uncle Ruckus. You got to talk about Uncle Ruckus. I mean, in this category, and this is why I definitely follow the Boondocks first because we had already had this topic on our minds, obviously. But the Boondocks, for as controversial as it is, whether you don't like the way things are in your face, I think the way they push things in your face. I mean, 
obviously it's done for a reason. It's supposed mm-hmm. to be ridiculous. It's supposed to be make satire. you feel it's a yeah, it's satire, it's satirical, that's what it is. And Uncle Ruckus, I mean, you want to talk about an Uncle Tom character, I mean, he's it. And it's done to the umpteenth degree to to a ridiculousness, um, but it's for a reason. So what's really interesting, and I, I would have to go back and read uh, Harriet Beecher Stowe. Yeah. Uh, Uncle Tom's. Uncle Tom's Cabin? Yeah. I, I have to go back and actually yeah. read it. Have you ever digested that? Like I've, I've, never, never, actually, di- I've never actually gone through it. I, I want to go back and, and read and, and learn a little bit more about the original character. Right. Because what I like about Uncle Ruckus so much as the Uncle Tom is how ugly they make him. Yeah, they make Just, they make, make him, him ugly, ugly ass character, and they kind of they do make the same him as thing. dark as they make him as dark as he can get. And so there's there's part of me that's just like it's hesitant to like a character like that because it's like okay, is is this being done? Like for instance, like the Uncle Tom character in Django Unchained, which would be Samuel L. Jackson's character, mm-hmm. has a very similar look if you actually like think about it. I'm kind of thinking he it, he was based off of Uncle Ruckus. Right. No, 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 that's exactly how he looks. But I would be quicker to say that that caricature of an Uncle Tom and of Samuel L. Jackson's character leans more racist than the Boondocks. The Boondocks well, is to make that character actually look, is an ugly person, is an ugly stereotype. This is... This is... It's clearly this is who he is. His name is Uncle... Right. But on Tarantino's side of it, Tarantino's a piece of shit. I was gonna say it it it's the messenger too. Exactly. It's the messenger. Here's the thing. Tarantino, fucking incredible movie maker. I love film. I love From a technical standpoint. Technical standpoint, Tarantino is one of the best, and I often look at him as inspiration. Hate his fucking guts. As a person. As a person. I respect Spike Lee as a director. As a influencer in the black community, as somebody that has showed black excellence, he has said some things that really pissed me the fuck off, especially about biracial yes. people and interracial marriage and stuff like that. And he is definitely really, not a one-off. Let's, he's not the only one. Right. I've heard, and others. so he he bothers the absolute shit out of me because I was reading a book that I have. Uh, it was about it was about hip hop and I can't remember the actual name about it. I had this book and I was reading through it and they were talking about a quote from him. He goes, "Yeah, when I see interracial couples, I give them dagger eyes." And I was just like reading this on the toilet and I was just like, this went down to my parents who are black and white and I was like, "Can you believe Spike Lee? Spike Lee said this." Read read the the little snippet and he goes, "Yeah, we ran into him on our honeymoon. He gave us those dagger eyes." <laughs> Ah, but not really. Right. Back to Uncle Ruckus. No relation. No, relation. no he's just like, he's so out there. He's Ill, he's illiterate. He's not well-spoken. He is, you know. It's all about the white people. Yeah. But it's just like that right there is just like the ugliness that other people that the white community would look towards black people as and then he's so quick to turn around and praise the oppressor and i think that's 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 the most yeah like he he's the he's one of the best examples of um 
what what they forced upon in Christianity onto our culture and to our people. Because you have to you have to look at that too. It's like you're, you're telling me the story of a guy coming out of like Jerusalem and, you, and you're portraying him as this like blonde haired blue eyed. Okay. We we gonna get into religion one of these <laughs> one of these episodes and but, but, but that was exactly what you said. Always talk about white Jesus. It's a control tactic. It white Jesus. It's it, the white man is the savior. The white savior. There it is. They're connected to. The and next, I thought it was such an interesting, interesting play on it because if you look at it in a religious thing, it's like, well, you, you as African Americans, while religion was a way of freedom and in a sense of being able to practice that religion that they had forced upon us, uh, we were able to expand our culture. We were able to your Sunday best, mm-hmm. just which is still. Which I don't think people understand is still a part of our culture. It's not necessarily a religious part of our culture, but the sense yeah. of why like, people look down and be like, well, they're getting free lunch at school, but they got the Jordan, like the hottest Jordans. I was like, yeah, that goes back to Sunday best. That goes back yeah. to wanting to look. Look the part. Look the part. You need to look the you part. You got to look fly. You got to look nice. You, you have just, to yeah. have that image. You have to be out there. And say I am well to do. I'm sustainable. I I can I can absolutely. There's no there's no way that that is a thing. But then Bill Gates is a thing, and to have that just be natural. It's not natural. Bill Gates doesn't look the part. No, Steve Jobs. Steve Jobs didn't. Well, Steve Jobs is another piece of shit. But fuck Steve Jobs. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> fuck Apple. But no. If I have an iPhone, Apple Music should be free. Sorry. That's not that's not even why fuck Steve Jobs. But anyway. Like it is a part of that. It's just there's a whole bigger picture. That's yeah, a very small part. Yeah. But yeah, once again, it's 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 the it's coming back to, you know, us holding the white male up here, white people in general, but especially the white man up here and wanting to garner that respect for them so that's the uncle tom um the next one is the sapphire which by name isn't one that people would recognize um but i'll read this to you and i mean see what you think the sapphire caricature from the 1800s through the mid 1900s popularly portrayed black women as sassy emasculating and domineering their sassiness was supposed to indicate that they were accepted as members of the white family, and acceptance of that sassiness implied that slavery and segregation were not overly oppressive. That one really fucked with me because I probably have, could be quoted as saying, like, I can't deal with black women, they're too sassy. I never said that. Wow, make me look like a piece of shit. <laughs> wow. All right. Hey, you see that bus over there? Podcast is over. <laughs> I'm walking out. I'm fine with the rest of the episode. I need to get my beer back. Hold up. I'm back. But no, it, it, it's one of those things where constantly in movies and television shows, like all the ones that I can think of had that character. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if it was a just like miseducation which definitely probably could have been part of in the fact that 
we're still buying into the stereotype without realizing it. I don't know that it's a miseducation. I think just based on who's normally heading most of these productions, Fuck. that it is clearly just it began it began as the nefarious thing mm-hmm. that, that it was. And then over the decades just became the thing and no one cared about it. It didn't affect them negatively at all. Oh, we need this character there. Why? Oh, it play it sells well. It, it's, it's and that's it. The, it doesn't uh, it doesn't black matter. Template yeah. It sells. Absolutely. The black template. Because media and black media are two completely different things in the eyes of everyone else. Just like, you know, look at this look at this brewery. Look at this brewery. Look at this store. Oh, this black-owned brewery, this black-owned store. Oh, this stuff must be cheap. It must be... There's something... Mm-hmm. Wrong. Wrong with mm-hmm. it. Wrong. Yeah. That black is a negative connotation. Mm-hmm. I, I joke, but I always have... Because I believe all jokes have truth in them. And I get, I get Black ice. Black ice always bothers me. Black magic always bothers me. Those terms... Because of the fact that it's these negative, negative things. You know, like, so, Black Ice is this dangerous thing. And I, I get why it's called Black Ice, because the, the road on the Because it's clear. It's clear. It's, it's, it's clear, clear. But it's clear ice. It's not that, Black that, Ice. That's what bothered me about it. It was just like, it's not the ice that's black. It's the fact that you can't see it. Right. Black, dark always goes back to we can't see it. We can't uh, not see as in we can't understand it. Right. Therefore, we're terrified. Definitely do not understand black people. Right. Right. Uh, so, like, even black magic. So, you look at two things. You have black magic, which is, like, voodoo, like, curse demonology, like, type of shit. Yeah, which that's a whole other thing about uh, voodoo stigma. And, like, yeah, yeah, no, I... I, I said it and immediately regretted it because it it's not what I meant. When I said voodoo, it was because of the white perception of voodoo. Correct. Yeah. But then you have white magic. Ah, which yeah, is this nice healing. Idea. Healing, yes, yes. Beautiful healing. And so like that that's where my like real I guess hatred of that like terminology like starts being Piss me off. So I'll be the one person at work who is like, well, we'll talk about something and I'll always do the like, like, oh yeah, black ice or something like that. Oh, okay, you guys be careful. There's like, I heard there's black ice. Like, Why does it got to be black? But for real though. Right. And everyone laughs. I'm just like, ah! yeah, it's funny. Ha 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 ha. We're getting killed in the street. So <laughs> the, <laughs> but seriously, um, no, you're right. So, but what what really hit me with the Sapphire one was why it was a thing. This last sentence here, and I'll reread it. Their sassiness was supposed to indicate that they were accepted as members of the white family, and acceptance of that sassiness implied that slavery and segregation were not overly oppressive. All of these tropes in one way or another, either push the stereotype that black people are complacent, so it makes the white person feel better. Yeah. Oh, they're not, they're not out to kill us and rape and pillage us. 
They're not mad about the fact that we enslaved them for, you know, 400 years. Right. The they're not mad about that. Oh, they're fine. You know, they love us. You know, they, the they're, they're so the black great. president, you know? Yeah. And it, it, it basically, they enjoy the thought of the black president because it means that uh, reparations have been had. Right. Oh, yep. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Look at, look at that. We've been, we've done it. Post, post racial, post, post slavery, post racial society. It's over. compression is gone. That's right. That's right. Return of the beige. We're all here. So I honestly don't think we're able to do Mammy. I don't believe we're able to do the Sapphire justice in conversation by being two black males. Correct. That's very true. We're going to have to, and we're going to have to look at some of the other conversations that we're having with this black film and media series Mm -hmm. and identify what areas we're not equipped to have a full discussion on. And then we're going to have to get somebody to sit down with us and further that conversation. I don't think Correct. we're doing people justice Correct. with that. Because as much as we can be knowledgeable on the topic, we can't feel the struggle of a woman. No. We don't have that struggle. We can try to appreciate it, but we can't live it like someone who is. Mm-hmm. So, you know... Everything that we're saying is through a particular lens, and as as wide as we try to have that lens be, we might miss something because we haven't we'll, experienced it. We'll miss something. We'll miss right. many things, and uh, I, I think that's that's something we need to try to rectify. Not rectify on our our perspective, but rectify as a we're not doing you guys the full benefit of this conversation. Right. This can be go. This can go deeper. Right. So we're going to try to get that as a whole episode for you guys because I think this is an important. These are important tropes. These are important stereotypes to be discussed and And uh, break down and break down. And I think we're missing something. So right. With that being said, next next one. The next one is very important to me because this blew my my mind. This is that. This is the one I immediately didn't know. Yes. So. the watermelon stereotype. Black people love watermelon. Why, why is that a negative stereotype, you might ask? So, before it became a racial stereotype, racist stereotype in the Jim Crow era, watermelon once symbolized self-sufficiency among African Americans. So you know right there that they were going to have to fuck shit up. Right. Because you can't it, have a yeah, you can't. symbol of black prosperity and just excellence. Black Wall Street, right? <laughs> Same thing here. Seen as a symbol of their freedom, many Southern whites reacted to the self-sufficiency created by the commerce by turning the fruit into a symbol of poverty and, quote-unquote, a feast for the unclean, lazy, and childlike. And a lot of times, the depictions of this would be, you know, people eating it without utensils, like savages, like unclean people. Which if we want to people. talk about savages, well, let's talk about medieval times when... How the fuck were you eating then? Oh, oh, oh. Like savages. No. I'm sorry. It's French. Savage. Wee <laughs> <laughs> oui, wee. Oui. Which is still dirty. 
<laughs> no, but there, there, there's a lot of things we get into there about about the Moors and how they and how they affected the uncleanliness of the Europeans. But we'll, we'll get into that in another episode. Freaking Europeans, man. Europeans. But so the, the, you know this this one this one is one of those that you could consider successful quote unquote because they were completely successful of course we know it's a dumb stereotype but we but we grew up to think that it was a dumb stereotype that doesn't have any kind of real value or any kind of real negative connotation it's just sort of like yeah yeah, you know like chicken and watermelon yeah yeah. i mean i was like shit i love chicken and watermelon yeah but then you you realize why it's a stereotype and now you see how damaging it is Honestly, when I read this, it, it led me to want to adopt the watermelon as, like, my symbol going forward as a way to reclaim what it means. As, as, as to say, like, nah, fuck what you did with that. This was ours to begin with. And we're going to take that back. Like, we're not going to allow it to be a negative like connotation anymore. Yeah. Like it, it ha- like that's gonna be one of my next tattoos is a slice of watermelon. You know what? I think your freelance branding, mm-hmm. whatever whatever you decide if you want to rename it or whatever you decide to go with, Taiwash Films. Taiwash Films. I think watermelon needs to be included in that. Mm-hmm. And ju- and like and, even if and, it's just imagery, or if it's actually in the in the, in the wording of things, I say, got right here, Taiwash Films, make the font however you want, but just have an outline of a watermelon and just put Taiwash Films inside of it, and just leave it at that. That's actually great because we'll be like, oh, it's a watermelon. That's weird. Why is it a watermelon? Bam! I'll tell you then why you the tell fuck it's a watermelon, it's watermelon because it's a fucking symbol of my prosperity. It is, it's of my success. Taiwash Films is successful, will be successful, and here's my symbol. Here's our symbol. Right. So that one, that one, that one hurt when I first learned it, and I, I, I don't remember when it was. It, I, I had heard about that like a while, a while back, and. I was surprised by it when I heard about it, but um, that the way that that just kind of seeped in and just entrenched itself. I mean, that's kind of what we're doing here is unroot, like unrooting that. Yes, this is a stereotype, but it's not just the ha ha. Oh, this is dumb stereotype. It's it's really just the the anger that a black person could be successful. That's what this does. You have and to this, strip down the success. Yeah. You have to discredit the the growth. Right. Because this is not about this the, 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 there there isn't any violence that comes off of this one. There's nothing, you know it's just it's, a complete destruction of but an it's image. A dis, it's the destruction of it's not just it's not just a destruction of an image. It's a destruction of a livelihood. Because these watermelon peddlers, that's what that's how they're making their living. That's how they're earning their living. And now they now they can't. Now it's delegitimized. Mm-hmm. Now they're selling to poor people, they're selling to dirty, unclean people, 
And, you know, dirty, unclean people, they're probably involved in drugs or they're probably involved in unsavory things. So we need to distance ourselves from that because we're not unrefined. Oh, fuck, we need a drug episode. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. But, you know, we're, we just we just came up with the next year's worth of episodes so during this tuned. podcast. So stay tuned. Um, but no, so the watermelon one really hit hard. But and moving moving on, though, um, the next one is another one that's kind of been very, very pervasive, very out there. You, you will have heard of this. Um, and it's the Mandingo. Um, the, the Smithsonian article also puts in parentheses the black buck. Um, once again, the reason that this is a stereotype, um, it's, I mean, it, it's, it's, it's not surprising. Surprising is not the word. It's very, it's, it, it's, you I, I, yeah, it you can see it happening. It, it, it's just, it's believable. Wow. Yeah, it's very believable. It's just like shocking. So, uh, conjured by the minds of enslavers and auctioneers to promote the strength, breeding ability, and agility of muscular young men, the, the Mandingo trope was birthed. So that part there, you know, I was I was on board. I knew that. That's where that came from. Um, right away, it's going into. Uh, it's going into the fact that. These are beasts to be used, you know, so it's almost like cattle, mm -hmm. you know, oh, look at this strong buck right here. Right. Yeah, it's going to be good in the fields, you know. So already this this trope comes from a racist time when we were not considered people. Right. You were but, an item, you were property, you were a tool. Yeah. But the ramifications of that moving forward is what shocked me and made me really think so i'm going to read this out emancipation brought with it fears that these men would exact sexual revenge against white men through their daughters as depicted in the film birth of a nation that right there that it's not even just the mandingo stereotype that's just a fear the fear of black men and the quote the sanctity of white womanhood that is where a lot of violence and anger comes from and it can be traced back right there to this particular stereotype to the mandingo stereotype because why was emmett till killed that line of reasoning right there he he touched a white woman's leg apparently he grew up the so white woman, apparently. Yeah, you want to talk about, like, early on, like, Central Park 5 shit? Yep. Same thing there. The minute something, the, the minute a black person's near a white woman, all of a sudden, all of a sudden there's this, there's this fear, there's this there's anger. A feardness. A feardness, yes, good word, a feardness. Look it up in the the thesaurus, as you will. But, you know, it's... It, this blew my mind because it's not... I didn't connect it to the Mandingo stereotype because the effects of that is wide-ranging. It's not just about 
the muscular, strong black men. It's just about black men in no, general. This is the, you walk into a store and now they they look over once because someone walked in and they look over again yeah. because, did you see who walked in? Yeah. You and can, now, who, and now yeah. who's being followed? Yeah, right. hide your kids, hide your wife. But yeah, it becomes it comes down to that. That that becomes the I'm walking down the street and someone's on the same side of the block as me, and now someone crosses the street. Is because oh, there's a black person on the side of the street. Let me, let me get to the other side of the uh, side of the road to to avoid them. Right, because because, because it's, it's it's and it's all about the the fear. That black people are going to genetically destroy the pure sanctity mm-hmm. of a white of the white race. Mm-hmm. That's what's terrifying, um, and that and that's kind of where the fear comes from because it's it's all it's that's what it's all about. And and this says talk this this is center, centering on revenge against the white man. But it it's not just about that. Right. It's also about keeping the white race above because how else how else are you going to destroy the white race in their eyes? How are you going to destroy the white race? They have all the power in the social dynamic. Mm-hmm. So unless there's a gigantic war, you like you said, you taint it genetically. So that's the huge fear among, you know, neo-Nazis and white supremacists and all that, that they're coming for our daughters. And there's this... Which is weird to me in another sense, too, because if we're going back to the Delaware bill and as far as the conversation we were having with alcohol... Okay, how are you... you, Yeah, yeah. How are you you connecting this one? So my, my big problem with... With how the U.S. treats alcohol and everything like that is, it almost becomes fetishized. It does, yeah. With with drinking, we'll start off with drinking. Drinking becomes fetishized because you you throw it in the movies, you throw it into the music, you throw it into everything, and it's this thing like this is fun, this blah blah blah. It's taboo, and so then the shows become about rebelliousness. Everybody likes to do what you're not being told. This is part of growing up, right? So with that being said, you 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 fetishize these high school parties. All right, I wasn't partying in high school, but I also don't remember hearing anything about the freaking rager that happened the night before or that over that weekend, like to an extent of like movie worthy party. Yeah, that wasn't happening, but that was that was what's perceived to be happening. Like when you look at Super Bad and different things like that. So. You, you put that restriction. You, you, you're afraid that all this stuff's going to happen. So then you go back to this whole thing about the, the, man, the Mandingo and you talk about the Black Buck and you talk about this fear that they're going to destroy the white race and that the white women should stay away and all this stuff. So aren't you essentially then creating a fetish? Absolutely. It's a fetishization of... The white woman. So you didn't think I was going to be able to like. (laughs) Yeah, okay. I see what you you did there. Two black men though. Right. Two black men. And you see that in black men love white women. 
They don't love black women. So now you get this now you get this dynamic where the black woman is down at the very, very bottom of the totem pole. And you're putting your, your own culture down. And you're putting your own culture down because you because the fear was originally that the black men are gonna go and rape all the white women or have sex with all the white women mm-hmm. and dilute the the white race. And then from that fear, through time, people start believing that that's what we like, including ourselves. So now we're predisposed to, yes, you, you know, this is what it is, you know, just, just what it is. Yeah. And the black woman is left all the way at the bottom of the totem pole. And you see that come up time and again with various issues. The black woman is always in, you know, the black woman's always in the back trying to catch up. And this is the oh, start of it. Oh, speaking of that, we're talking about hidden figures now. <laughs> Forget where the fuck this was. They renamed the street, like, Hidden Figures Drive or something like that. Like, that was some fucking reward. Like, that was like, yeah. like up there right like how you're still not adding value you're doing nothing that does nothing right it's just a political play that really that's all it is me. it's a feel-good play yes yeah, we're honoring them yes yes there it is and that's the end of that sparked it. i'm sorry that 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 triggered me but that but that's what these stereotypes do that's what this does that's that's not it's not like they were created like to fill this void. It's like they were created through the prejudice, through the prejudice. These things were created and we're defining them here. Um, So that was the last stereotype for um, we've been pulling these stereotypes straight from the Smithsonian article that Tyler quoted earlier. Um, Like I said, we'll have that link so you can look through for yourself. Um, there's also a link on that article to, um, artifacts, uh, related to those stereotypes. So that's also an interesting look. Um, if you have time, uh, we'll be, we'll be adding that link in. Um, so, so we hit a lot and I think this is a good spot to end for this episode. I know we were going to get into another article and then the next show initially was supposed to be uh, the black film television media timeline. Right. But I think why don't we have the next article be part two? Yeah, I think that's a good place to stop because, um, you know, part one, we got into it. Um, Part two is going to be a lot more of the stereotypes that you can't just name mm-hmm. like right right now you know you think of all of these except really the sapphire which once you hear the once you hear the description of sapphire you Bam. think automatically oh that's just what what the stereotype is but now you have a name to it all the other ones are easily identified stereotypes that have permeated our culture so these next these next couple um that we'll get into next time are 
not quite so out there. Um, there's a little more, there's a little more background to them. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we'll get into some of, you know, the modern stereotypes and we will see how they connect to what we, ju- what we've already talked about. And then we'll get into, um, the effects on our culture, you know, as a right, whole right. and, and then stereotypes for non-black minorities because, mm-hmm. you know, Trump administration, yeah. we can get into immigration, um, and the stereotypes used basically to win Trump an election. Right. No, that was insane. So, so. All right. So thank you for tuning in. Uh, you can hit us up at the, uh, at alternative blacks pod, not average blacks. Right. Alternative blacks pod. Uh, I think our Twitter handle is actually blacks pod. Blacks pod. I'll get, to, I'll get that to you guys next time for sure. But, uh, well, thank you guys for tuning in. We got to get some, somebody on here to uh, speak from the female perspective Absolutely. on some of these issues. That'll be after the whole series wraps up. So thank you guys. Have a great night. Peace.